Thank you, Pastor Mandy. Well, good morning, everybody. How are we doing? How many of you have Christmas shopping is started? Raise your hand. First time ever. I'm on the ball. How many of you are done? Okay, that's two on the ball. Can somebody show these people out, please? And how many of you have not started? There's my people right there. Yes, there you go. Well, it's an unusual, uh, it's an unusual season, and uh, you've heard um, about Toronto and Peel Region are being shut down, uh, locked down tomorrow. Um, you know, I got to tell you, uh, we need to pray for those areas, for the people. It's very difficult. I mean, we've experienced lockdown, and Lord, please, never again. But listen, not only pray for the people in Peel and Toronto, but um, pray for our churches there. Um, it's hard on congregations um, to be locked down and not, I mean, I know this is, I mean, I know that COVID and the way we're seated in the room and in the overflows and online um, is, is strange enough, but it's, it's going to be difficult for them for the next um, four weeks or so. And maybe it's going to be longer than that. But you know what? Please make sure that we pray uh, for these people, for the people in Toronto and Peel Region, and also pray for our churches and for our pastors. Not just our Pentecostal pastors, but pastors and churches, um, because it's difficult, isn't it? Amen? Okay. Uh, you doing okay? Who's tired this morning? Raise your hand if you're tired this morning. Just raise your hand. It's not a sin to be tired. There you go. Okay. I, I thought some of you might be. <laughs> a few people doing this, not sure. We'll tell you at the end of the sermon whether or not we're tired. Uh, but let's stand together. We are in the fifth installment of 1 John, and today our text is 1 John uh, chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, or rather 18 to 29. And this is what it says, and I will read it for you um, in just a minute. Uh, this is what it says. Uh, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all, remember that, you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father, sorry, no one who denies the Son as the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. 
I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you have received, but the anointing that you have received, from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as, as, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for your love for us in Jesus Christ and the demonstration exhibition of that has been so gracious, so extravagant and so generous and we're grateful and thankful and we thank you that for the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit that takes everything that you've done in Jesus and makes it possible, applicable, and available in our lives. And we thank you that by that same Holy Spirit that when we gather together in this room or in the overflows or when we are together online, Lord, as we watch on our devices, we thank you for the felt presence of Jesus. And that, Lord, we can actually be consciously aware that we are in your presence and that you are in our midst. And so we ask this morning that the same Holy Spirit would take your word today and you would give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to comprehend. And Lord, as we go out from this place and as we turn off our devices and our TVs this morning, Lord, that we would, by the Holy Spirit, in practical, meaningful ways, live out what it means to be Christ followers in our marriages where it applies and with our children and with our parents and with our siblings and with our friends and in our workplaces and where we go to school and where we buy our services and get our services, <clears throat> that people will know that we are Christians by our behavior. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you in Christ's name, amen. Why don't you be seated? Now, what do we think John means by the last hour? We are told at least three things in the New Testament about the last hour. We are told that it is going to be about, and it is about, the return of Jesus, and that it is about the end of time events. And we are also told that at the beginning of this time, it is going to be very, a very difficult, a very difficult time. But when John says to us that it is the last hour, it appears to us to be a little bit problematic. 
because we have been saying this for the last 2,000 plus years and we are still waiting for Jesus' return. Now, of course, we need to be careful because Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And so we need to be careful because although we have been waiting and we've been talking about that it is the last hour for the last 2,000 plus years, we need to be careful that we don't fit into this category and become scoffers. But how do we reconcile? How do we reconcile that we have been saying that it has been the last hour for the last 2,000 plus years and Jesus still hasn't come and we are still waiting. How do we reconcile that? Well, I think part of the answer may be how we understand time. Time is relative. Do you know how many days there are till Christmas? Don't go looking it up. How many of you know how many, day, how many days are there till Christmas? If we include today, I'll give you the answer, 34. Now, think about time as being relative. You're a three-year-old, and you have lived 1,095 days. Well, I want you to know 34 days when you've only lived 1,095 days is a long time to wait. Like, that's like 10% of your life. But if you're 60 years old... You have lived 21,900 days. Be careful. Be very careful. And if you have lived 21,900 days, then 34 days to wait is not a really big deal, is it? Right? Time is relative. The second thing is that we understand that God is infinite. That there is no time with God. Matter of fact, I love the way Daniel puts it. Daniel calls him the ancient of days. And so when you're infinite and you have no, that you're not bound by time and that you, I mean, a couple of thousand years is not a big deal. And of course, we know again from 2 Peter 3.8 where it tells us that with the Lord, a, a day is like a thousand years and a, a thousand years is like a day. Well, if you're the ancient of days and you're infinite, what's a couple thousand years? It's like a day. Time is relative. And the third thing is that we also know that this, the last hour will come. We know that the return of Jesus has been the consistent, fervent belief and hope of the Christian church from the beginning of the church. And it is still our hope even today. But John says, in conjunction with the last hour, there will be the Antichrist and Antichrists. Now, Antichrist literally means against Christ or instead of Christ. 
Now note what John says here. John refers to Antichrist both singular and plural. And Antichrist or Antichrist's plural can refer to a system that is in opposition to God. It can refer to a person or persons, plural, who are in opposition to God. But of course, we know, many of us who have an understanding, a, a, a fuller understanding of the biblical text, that 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, tells us that there is a person that is coming toward the end of our time and that he is identified as the man of lawlessness, the person of lawlessness. We are told that this character, this antichrist, this individual will lead a significant rebellion against Jesus and against the kingdom of God as we approach or at the end of what we call today the age of grace or the age of the church, the time that we're currently in. And we are also told throughout the New Testament that this hostile antichrist spirit will not only permeate this age, but it will intensify, that it will increase as we get closer to the return of Jesus. But the Antichrist and the Antichrist that John is referring to probably are false teachers. And this is primarily who John is talking about. From, from the earliest times in and around the church in Ephesus, which we believe that the book of 1 John was written to, the Christians in Ephesus, there have been a false teachers, and false teachers have been a problem, and false teachers tend to be a problem in our time. Paul, as he is giving his farewell, farewell address to the same church, to the church at Ephesus, in Acts chapter 20, he says these words. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, from among your own selves will arise men and probably women speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Now, John warns them then, and he warns us now. That we are to be aware, that we are to be alert, that we are to be conscious of those who teach things that are not true, that are not consistent with the biblical text. And so, the Apostle Paul says two things. The first one is not so surprising. He says that, he says, when I leave, he says, fierce wolves are going to come from outside and they're going to come in among you. But then he says something that is totally surprising. He says, but there will also be those that will rise up from among you. Now, is it not hard to believe that it is possible that some of us, that some of us could rise up and be false 
teachers? It's surprising, isn't it? <clears throat> False teachers have an antichrist spirit and attitude. And in this antichrist spirit and attitude, they teach false things. They deny the truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and ultimately they are opposed to the church and to the kingdom of God. So I think that it would be helpful this morning for us to talk about five things that we need to keep in mind when it comes to false teachers. The first thing, of course, is that we need to be discerning, be aware, be alert, be conscious that false teachers can come from the outside, but false teachers can also rise up from within us, Paul tells us. The second thing we need to understand is that there is a difference between error and heresy. Error and heresy are not the same things. You see, we can be in error and still be a Christian and not lose our soul. Some Christians, and I know it's not the case of glad tidings, but some Christians have strange ideas about faith and about spirituality and about theology. It's strange stuff. I think myself sometimes when I hear Christians talking about, what are you reading? Who are you listening to? But I'm getting out of that because that's just trouble right there. And let's be honest, let's be honest, even the best of us, we get it wrong sometimes. We just get it wrong sometimes. Sometimes we get it wrong because we simply haven't been taught or we haven't learned properly. And so we can be in error and still be a Christian and not lose our souls. But heresy is a whole other thing. Heresy will not only keep us out of the kingdom of God, but it will cost us our eternal soul. For example, here's heresy. If we believe that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God, then it will keep us out of the kingdom of God and it will cost us our eternal souls. So we need to be careful about somebody who's in error and somebody who is teaching heresy. Those are two different things. And so we thirdly need to use judgment sparingly. A sincere but misguided teacher may not necessarily be a conscious false teacher. And as we said before, no one understands God and the Bible and theology and spirituality perfectly. And so we should be generous and gracious and long before we are condemning and we cast somebody out. But I think the fourth thing about false teachers that's helpful is that we need to pay attention to their ethical and moral behavior. In the biblical text, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament... It stresses that often false teachers live immoral lives. And so we need to watch their behavior, watch how they treat people, power, money, and sexuality. And do not excuse or cover up bad behavior. And then the fifth thing is simply this. That when it comes to allegiance to Jesus, when it comes to allegiance to 
Jesus' gospel and truth, neutrality is a myth. I like what the late Margaret Thatcher, the one-time Prime Minister of Great Britain, said. She said, standing in the middle of the road is very dangerous. You get knocked down by traffic from both sides. There's no sitting on the fence. Matter of fact, Jesus is more decisive. Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, 23, he says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And then there's this. And John talks about antichrists and antichrist. And then he talks about those who have gone AWOL. Absent without leave. He writes in verse 19, he says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. These are the defectors. These are the deserters, the traitors, the renegades, and the runaways. And the sad New Testament example is a man by the name of Demas. Now we, when we track him through the New Testament, this is what we find. First of all, in Philemon, Paul says, <coughs> excuse me, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, as does Mark and Aristarchus, Demas, and Mark, my fellow workers. And then he writes in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, we read these words for Demas. In love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now that brings us to the opposite of those who are AWOL or antichrists or antichrist. Us. You and me, who have been and are being massaged by the Holy Spirit. John says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. Now, anointing originates in the Old Testament. Many of us know this, but for those of you who don't, and it refers to a sacred oil that was used to anoint things and people. And so when someone or something was anointed in biblical terminology, it means that it was set apart to make holy. It was consecrated. It was set apart for a sacred purpose or a special service. And this was symbolized by the anointing of oil. In the Old Testament, usually it was only the kings and the priests who were anointed. And they were anointed with oil to designate them as civil and as spiritual leaders. But 1 Peter, along with John, tells us that you and I... We also, each and every one of us, have been 
made holy, consecrated. That you and I have been set apart for a special purpose. In the Old Testament, only kings and priests were anointed, but in our text it tells us that God anoints every Christian with the Holy Spirit. Every believer. If we are in this room in the overflows this morning and we're watching online, if we are a Christian, God has anointed you and me with the Holy Spirit. Anointing also means empowerment. That when we are anointed by the Holy One, that there is an enabling, there is a qualifying, there is an assistance, there is an authorizing from God. Now in the, the authorized version of the Bible, the King James, it has a great word that it substitutes for anointing. The King James says, but ye have an unction. I love that word, unction from the Holy Spirit. You know what it means? <clears throat> it comes from the Greek word charism. Uh, it's where we get our English words charismatic. Or if somebody is very gregarious and got, a, you know, one of those personalities that are glowing, we call them that they are very charismatic. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit are called the charismata, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then there's this. <clears throat> In the Old Testament, when a king or a priest was anointed with oil or sacred things that were used in the temple for worship were anointed with oil, the Bible tells us that it was poured on them. Now, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and my older brother, who was 10 years older than I, used to use a hair product called Bureau Cream. How many of you remember that? Raise your hand. Not a sin to know that. Okay, you know what I mean. Anybody know what the jingle was? A little dab will do ya. You know what they say about gel? You know, it's the size of a pea and you put the product in your hair. A little dab will do you. Well, let me just tell you this. That's not how God operates with the anointing of his spirit. In Psalm 133, there's an amazing statement. It says this. Behold, how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. Got that so far? It is like the precious oil, the anointing oil, on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. The oil was poured on Aaron so thickly that it matted his hair and his beard together like it was one thick single strand of hair. And that's why it's an illustration of unity. <laughs> the point is simply this, that God is not stingy when it comes to anointing. The point is abundance, abundance. It is poured out on us. It is plentiful, it is bounteous, it is ample, it is copious. 
But to anoint also means this. To anoint means to be smeared or rubbed with the Holy Spirit. Ladies at home, and some men, you may have this, it's okay, there's nothing wrong with this. I want you to reach into your purse and pull out your hand cream. Come on, don't be shy. Pull out your hand cream. And if you are sitting next to somebody who you know and don't, and you know, you're socially distanced, I want you to put a little dab in your hand and in their hand. I got this from Leanne this morning. She gave it to me out of her office. And you know what we do with hand cream, right? The same thing God does with his Holy Spirit. He rubs it in. He smears it into our lives. Abundance. Abundance. He smears us and he rubs us with the special endowment of the Holy Spirit, with the gifts and the presence of the Holy Spirit. It is not just that we are given an anointing, it is that we are smeared with it. In other words, John says, by anointing, you and I have been and are being anointed and massaged by the Holy Spirit. That's what anointing and unction means. That it is God's massaging of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Jesus was massaged and rubbed with and anointed with the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite verses and one of the most important verses in the Bible is in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, where it says how God anointed, (laughs) smeared, massaged Jesus with the Holy Spirit and how he, with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for the Lord was with him. If I could convince Christians, if I could convince you, us, about three things, it would be these. If I could get us to live out of three principles, it would be this. You ready? The first principle is this, that we are forgiven. There is no message greater that Christians need to hear and need to know and need to live out of is this, that you are forgiven. I'm forgiven. We're forgiven. And if I could get Christians, especially those of us with some difficult pasts, it would change how we live our lives. The second thing I would like to teach every Christian and every Christian get it is that we have gifts. You know how you were born naturally and when you were born you were given gifts? You know, if somebody has a beautiful voice, they, you know, you, you train it and you develop it, but you can either sing or you can't sing. Or you're mediocre or you're really good. And that's a natural gift. Now, when we are born again by the Spirit of God, we receive spiritual gifts. 
every single believer watching on the broadcast, every person that is in this room who is a Christian, <clears throat> and every person in the overflow, you and I, when we were born again, were given spiritual gifts. We need to develop them, but we have them. When you were born again, when I was born again. And the third thing that I would teach people is this and get people to live is this, that you have an anointing of the Holy Spirit. You have been smeared and you have been massaged by the Holy Spirit of God. Every single person. Now, for some of us that have been around a while, we unfortunately are plagued with a bit of a misunderstanding. And that misunderstanding is simply this, that we tend to think that only pastors, teachers, Christian leaders, and evangelists have an anointing. No. Go back and read John's text. He says, all of you have knowledge. Nobody is ex exempt. Every single believer. And by the way, if you are still not convinced that you have an anointing from the Holy Spirit, that you have been massaged and rubbed and smeared with the Holy Spirit. Go back to the text because John tells us this three times, that we have an anointing from the Holy Spirit. Now, that brings us to this. Being massaged and anointed with the Holy Spirit results in and results from marinating in Jesus. Six times in our text, John uses the word abide. Abiding in the Son and in the Father is to marinate. You know what marinating is, right? You want a really good steak or a nice piece of delicious chicken. You put that in a marinade and you just let it lay there. Turn it over from time to time and massage it a little bit. And by the time you put that in the oven or on the barbecue and you cook that, man, it is falling apart. And you, you're, you, know, you are drooling because it tastes so good. To marinate in Jesus, to abide in Jesus means to be in, to remain in, to be continually in close connection with Jesus, to be intimately attached to him. And then John says that if we are marinating in Jesus or we have been marinated in Jesus, that we can be guaranteed of eternal life now and in the future. Now, we all know what eternal life is in the future, right? It's quality of life and it's quantity. But did you know that we can enjoy the characteristics of eternal life now? Jesus says in John 10.10 10, that the enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy, but he says, I have come that they may have life, and what? Abundantly. He's talking about eternal life. We can enjoy some of the qualities of eternal life right now here. And then he says, secondly, by marinating and abiding in Jesus, we can have confidence. 
the last hour and the spiritual and the political and the environmental climate that will accompany it or is accompanying it will cause fear and despair and disbelief in a lot of people. But for us who are marinating in Jesus, we remain stable with confidence. And the last thing that John says is this. He says that if we are marinating in Jesus, if we are marinated in Jesus, then it'll be seen in our behavior. The last verse says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Here's what John is saying. John is, this is the gist of what he means. If there is one thing that no one, none of us wants to be is shallow. No one wants to live a superficial life. Correct? Deep is better. Friends want to have deep conversations. Philosophers want to think deep thoughts. Coaches, they want a deep bench, and fans want their teams to go deep into the playoffs. And investors, well, they're looking for a deep recovery, and gardeners want deep roots for their plants. And John, he wants us to be deep in Christ. Deep implies substance. We want to be deep people. We want to live deep lives. And John says the only way to do that is to marinate in Jesus. To marinate in Jesus. So, let's finish with this. How do I know if I am abiding in Jesus? How do you know if you are marinating in Jesus? How do we know if we are marinated in Jesus? Here's 10 questions that might, we might ask ourselves to answer that question. The first one is this. Am I thirsty for God than ever, thirstier for God than ever before? Number two. Am I becoming more loving? Number three, am I becoming more sensitive to and aware of God's presence in my life? Number four, am I being governed increasingly by God's word? Do my value systems Do they come out of God's word or are my value systems coming out of the world's system? Five, 
Am I concerned about the physical and spiritual needs of others? Six. Am I aware of the concerns of the kingdom of God and the church? Am I more aware of the concerns of the kingdom of God and the church than I used to be? Seven. Am I applying the disciplines of the Christian life in my life? Am I praying? Am I reading the Bible regularly? Do I come to church? Do I listen online during church? Do I participate? Do I fast from time to time? Do I give of my income and my resources? <clears throat> Number seven. Am I becoming more aware of my sin and my sinfulness? Number nine, am I willing to forgive others? And the last one, do I think about life beyond the present? And that eventually and ultimately of being in the very real presence of Jesus. That this life is not all there is for me and you. That one of these days, I'm going to stand in the real presence of Jesus. Am I aware of that? Great questions, don't you think? I borrowed them. I want you to stand with me for a moment. Father, hmm. The quietness, the silence is a sign. The calm and the silence and the quietness is a sign that you are working deep in our hearts and our lives. It is a sign that you are calling us. to go deeper in Jesus. You are calling us to abide, to marinate in Jesus. That's the result of being rubbed, smeared, massaged by your Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit always leads us to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit always leads us toward being crafted and molded and shaped into the likeness of Jesus. So, Father, as we stand here this morning, as we sit at home this morning, or in our car, that you, by your Holy Spirit, speak to us. Am I marinating? Am I abiding in Jesus? Is he the number one relationship in my life? And how will I answer and how 
do I answer these ten questions? Father, I know that this is not a time of working this out in this room. This is something we have to work out in our lives. When we leave this auditorium in a few moments or when we shut off our TVs and our devices in a couple of moments and we go out into our real lives where we live 24, 7, 365. Am I marinating in Jesus? This is John's question. And Lord, it is your question that you are speaking right now to our hearts and lives. And it is the quietness. It is the silence. It is this holy silence and quietness that is evident that your spirit is working in us and through us. And we want to say thank you. It's not always easy, but thank you for loving us enough to pursue us and to challenge us and to convict us and to direct us into the path of becoming like Jesus. And we thank you and ask these mercies in Christ's name. Amen.